Hello, I am Gail Barry, and this is Teaching with Learning in Mind, the podcast for anyone in the business of higher education. This podcast consists of seven episodes, which are hosted by me and a few of my friends. The framework for this podcast is borrowed from a superb book called How Learning Works by Susan Ambrose, Michael Bridges, Michelle DiPetro, Marsha Lovett, and Mari Norman. I will put a link to the book in the episode description. Today we are talking about the learning climate and how the social and emotional self influences learning. As we do, we will first talk about principles and then explore a few strategies that you may use in your classroom. I purposefully use teacher terminology in this podcast because I suspect that as higher education educators, we hide behind the lecturer label and free ourselves from the responsibility of teaching and student learning. Let's take some time to be teachers and not just subject matter experts. And with that, let's get into today's episode. So what is course climate exactly? Course climate is the unanticipated, unpredictable, and unrepeatable social and emotional dynamic in your classroom that complicates the learning experience. Because learning, and for that matter teaching, is not that complicated already, right? Your students are still developing. The full range of social and emotional skills that you and I have. Yes, we are talking in very broad strokes here. We're assuming that your students are of the traditional university-going age. We assume also that you and I have already mastered a full range of social and emotional skills. Development of emotional and social skills are particularly notable during this phase of life. In fact, did you know that the emotional and social gains made during this time are arguably greater than the intellectual gains over the same span of time? Crazy, I know. So then what is the point anyway? If students don't even learn that much, why are we bothering to learn how to teach them? Well, we can't force them to learn more. But how about we explore ways to not disengage them completely and maybe even capitalize on this phase in a student's life to get as much learning in them as we can? Does that sound like a good plan? It does to me. Let's take a minute to talk about teaching students and not content. To do this, we need to consider the complex set of social, emotional, and intellectual challenges that university students have. Considering and recognizing these challenges does not mean that we are responsible for guiding students through these complexities. We are not their life coaches. But it does mean that by taking cognition of the implications of student development for teaching and learning, we can create more productive learning environments. In the How Learning Works book, Susan and her mates use the Chickering model to systematically account for students' developmental changes. This model has seven dimensions. Let's explore them. 
The first dimension talks about developing competence, specifically intellectual, physical and intrapersonal competence. Intellectual competence refers to all things, strictly speaking, university. That includes study skills, learning to learn for university, developing problem-solving skills and critical thinking abilities. Physical competence refers to a student learning to care for themselves in terms of their health and well-being. That may have been a parental responsibility previously. Intrapersonal competence refers to communication, group and leadership skills. Let's use an example to add some color to this dimension. Let's say that in term three, you give your first year students a group project to complete, bearing in mind that they have been successfully navigating group work for six months in other modules. You brief them and give them timesheets to complete. On the sheets, there are spaces to record hours slept, hours worked as a team, hours worked individually, and hours rested. You also give them reflective worksheets to reflect on their group work efforts. Let's unpack this. Are the timesheets a good idea or a bad idea? They're a bad idea. After six months, whether they were taught explicitly or learned on the job, Students have already mastered such basic levels of physical competence. The reflective worksheets, on the other hand, they're a good idea. These specific students are only six months of university old. They may be at a place of intellectual competence where reflection on their group work and interpersonal competencies will help them to grow in those areas. The second dimension talks about managing emotions. That means being aware of and expressing their emotions, such as anxiety, happiness, anger, fear, frustration, excitement, depression, and so on. Let me share an example with you. In a postgraduate class I was recently attending as a peer reviewer, the lecturer asked students where they were employed. A good number of them I would guess about 20% were employed by ESCOM. Given our current situation, I imagined a lynching, at the very least. A snarky remark or some glaring, but thankfully I was wrong. Why was I wrong? This was a professional postgraduate class. The majority of students already had five years of industry experience, meaning that they were older and in control of managing their emotions. Can you imagine a similar situation playing out in a first-year class? First-year students may well be aware of their emotions, but not yet mastered controlling them. The third dimension talks about developing autonomy. Autonomy refers to the degree to which you can self-govern your beliefs and actions. Children are not autonomous. Their parents govern their beliefs and actions. As you grow, so should you become more autonomous. Autonomy is achieved through emotional and instrumental independence. Emotional independence has to do with the desire of approval and instrumental independence has to do with your ability to deal with challenges on your own terms. Many lecturers have inadvertently interfered with the student's sense of autonomy by overcompensating with assistance or extra help on a project. 
particularly with students who seem to be in need. For example, if you have a group of students who started the semester late or have language barrier difficulties, the key is to find the magic spot where you provide enough assistance to be a good teacher, but not so much that you rob already disadvantaged students of their autonomy. The fourth dimension talks about establishing identity. Identity is formed by a student's developing competencies, their ability to identify and manage their emotions, and their developing a sense of autonomy. What makes it even more important is that dimensions five, six, and seven are grounded in the concept of identity. Identity involves being comfortable in your body, your appearance, your gender, and sexual orientation, and your racial and ethnic heritage. Students with a well-developed sense of self are open to new ideas that may challenge their beliefs. Unless you are comfortable and secure in your identity, challenging ideas are not going to inspire a rigorous debate. They are going to scare you and leave you feeling insecure, with absolutely no learning to be had. I suspect that as South Africans, we have a keen understanding and deep empathy for the concept of identity. I like to think that in our classrooms, we are comfortable teaching a multitude of identities. We may not be experts at it yet, but I think we are, by virtue of our country's history and ongoing decolonization, we are flexible and accommodating towards our students' identity needs. The fifth dimension talks about developing mature intrapersonal relationships. To have mature intrapersonal relationships, you need to be aware of the difficulties among people and developing empathy to navigate the relationships. While students may understand the concept, they often confuse empathy with sympathy. As students develop empathy, they will increasingly be able to understand the world through other people's eyes, informed by intrinsic differences. The sixth dimension talks about developing a purpose. After a student has come to a place of comfort in their identity, they are able to think past who am I and rather think about who am I going to be. Moving past the now and focusing on the future furthers a student's goal and life objectives. The last dimension talks about developing integrity. The tension between self-interest and social responsibility is where integrity lies. When navigating successfully, the tension develops into a set of values that guide and direct behavior. How students navigate and negotiate these seven dimensions shapes how they grow personally and interact with one another, you, and the content of your module. It also influences their level of engagement, motivation, and persistence, as well as their sense of agency and identity in their chosen fields. No pressure. In other words, developmental processes have a profound implication for learning. I have before mentioned my worst lecturer, but today I will take you with me to the moment that impacted me so very heavily. 
I was 18 and one month old. December baby problems. I was in my first year. I'd grown up in a town. No, it was not a city. Just your average small town situation. So here I am in res. First time of my life that I'm not living at home. Dressed in my res uniform. So glad that the hazing week was over and they let us sleep. Here I am in class, mostly trying not to fall asleep due to complete Yule exhaustion. And my lecturer says to us, we need to tell him our identity. I reply that I am an English-speaking South African. That's how I defined my identity. I forget his tirade because I was left questioning my life choices, my course choice, my whole choice to move to varsity, he called me racist because white was not part of my identity, therefore I must assume that all people are white and therefore I was a racist. He told me that I was incapable of unique, therefore critical thought, as I appeared to be enjoying being in res, as I was freely wearing the uniform. And then he called me entitled, as my parents could clearly afford to send me to university and res when I was incapable of critical thought and would fail. I did fail. This module added an entire year to my undergraduate degree. In his defense, not that he deserves any, he gave similar scathing judgments to all 20 of us in the class. He was forcing us to critically examine our identities. Design educators can be brutal. I kept waiting as I studied teaching and then lectured year on year and studied more. I kept waiting to understand this man's motivation. I can now say with a fair amount of expertise on the topic that he was just a bad lecturer. My experience of that class, of that lecturer, turned my course climate negative in just a few minutes. Yes, other students passed and possibly were not as scarred as I was, but my terrible lecturer and I are a supreme example for this podcast. Let's loop back to Chickering's model and unpack it. First of all, let's look at the competencies. I was not intellectually competent yet. It can be assumed also that my classmates were not either. Given that it was the very first week and the very first class of term one in first year. I was not yet physically competent. I had moved out of my parents' house three weeks ago. By the same token, any students who were not still living at home were also not physically competent yet. I've probably always been intrapersonally competent. Thankfully, I had one of the three competencies going for me. The second dimension, was about managing my emotions. I think it is accurate to say that while I could identify anger, hate, shame, shock, and probably embarrassment, I could not manage these emotions. The third dimension talks about autonomy. At 18 and one month, coming from a home into a res and out of hazing week, I had probably zero autonomy. I can't imagine that many of us had very much autonomy at that point in our varsity careers. The fourth dimension speaks of identity, which is no doubt why this lecturer honed in on the point. 
If you remember when we were discussing identity and why it was so important, identity is built on the student, that would be me, being intellectually, physically, and intrapersonally competent, having control over identifying and managing my emotions, and a specific level of autonomy. No wonder I had done a superficial job of expressing my identity. In hindsight, I wonder how many of my classmates had also bombed out. None of us could have been reasonably expected to answer his question accurately, much less survive his take on our self-proclaimed identities. The fifth, sixth, and seventh dimension did not stand a hope of being met as I couldn't get past the identity. Having survived this ordeal with 18 and one month old small town Gale, can you see how personal development is fundamentally and intrinsically intertwined with course climate? You can design the best curriculum, the best assessments, you can be the best teacher, and if you are not taking students' developmental stages into account, you are not going to achieve much beyond frustration, irritation, and annoyance from both you and your students. For example, could you put the hateful identity discussion in a master's class? Of course you could. I would even advocate for it. But compare how a master's student would have reacted to how I did. Let's talk strategies. Okay, I think we can all just calm down. Yes, I passed eventually. My three-year degree took four years. I finished honors and masters and mostly survived the terrible lecturer and his first year terrible strategies. So now let's talk about strategies that you can implement in your classroom. The How Learning Works book has about 15 strategies that you can and should read. But I'm going to talk us through my favorite and probably most accessible three. We are going to talk about making uncertainty safe. And we're going to talk about not asking individuals to speak for an entire group. And lastly, we're going to talk about how you can model inclusive language, behavior, and attitudes. Let's make uncertainty safe. As we develop intellectually, we move from stage to stage, propelled by a challenge that reveals inadequacies of the current stage. Our students, at the beginning of their first year, are typically dealing with a basic duality of knowledge, meaning that concepts are either right or wrong, with little room for ambiguity. At this stage, knowledge is an absolute and is handed down from the knowers. This could be the teacher, or the textbook. It is the student's responsibility to learn everything and then give it back when asked. This is a quantitative view of knowledge and all that is knowable is already known. Starting at university forces students to move forward to a stage of multiplicity of knowledge. At this stage students come to realize that everyone has an opinion and that all opinions are equal. At this stage, students start to question the knowers, the teachers and the textbooks. Students typically stay here 
until they get to their final year of undergraduate study. Where they are expected to use critical thinking to separate good opinions from irrelevant opinions. At this point, a student's understanding of knowledge moves from quantitative to qualitative. Teachers become guides and facilitators of learning. This stage empowers students as they realize that they have the critical and analytical skills to navigate knowledge, mostly effectively. When students reach a postgraduate academic level, they begin to realize that navigation, critical and analytical thought alone, is not enough. To progress their knowledge development, students move towards a space of commitment, where they commit to a worldview and a set of lenses that they use to process knowledge. When students master one worldview, they are challenged to adopt even more. Thus, arriving at the understanding that knowledge is complex, layered, subjective, and heterogeneous. The space of transition between these phases is awkward and uncomfortable. As students grow, and the chances are that they will get something horribly wrong and likely offend at least one person in the process. It is your responsibility as the teacher to navigate these conversations and preempt possibly explosive situations. Explain to students that learning is uncomfortable and making mistakes is a good indicator that you are pushing the knowledge stage that you are in. Be kind and be patient with students as they navigate this journey. Remind yourself that you were as awkward and embarrassing as your students are once, and that they do not enter your classroom with your command of knowledge. You did, in fact, develop that over time. The second strategy I would like to share with you is about not asking individuals to speak for the group. I chronically dislike the idea of a class representative. I find it condescending and convenient for bureaucracy. Take a minute to think about who gets voted into the position of class representative. I was in a class observation visit about a month ago, and the lecturer asked who the class representative was. Students looked around, and the lecturer said, Jared, you do it again. Jared had probably been the class representative since the first year. What does Jared represent? Probably about 20% of his class. And let's be fair, that 20% has never lacked for agency. Unless Jared is on top form and emotionally intelligent beyond his years, he cannot extend his intrapersonal understanding to the point where he can represent the other 80% of his class. Can he speak on sexist issues? Can he speak on racial discrimination? What about microaggressions? Possibly not. Shame, guys. Jared's only 20. But then, if we don't use Jared as the class representative, who do we use? The one Indian girl in the class? Because she represents the most underrepresented minority? Shame! She can only represent 1.5% of the class. Do you see why the idea of a class representative gets up my nose? We are so conditioned to think of students as a homogeneous mass of bodies that we should probably just pause and examine our own bias and assumptions. 
that we have made about students. My last strategy to share with you has to do with modeling inclusive language, behavior, and attitudes. I'm going to offer you a piece of advice that I would like you to accept verbatim. And then in a year's time, tell me if you were glad that you accepted my advice. See your students as little mirrors. Students unconsciously reflect your own behavior back at you. For example, if your students are antagonistic, they are probably reflecting something that you do that makes them feel insecure. Are you perhaps threatening their intellectual, physical or intrapersonal competence? Have you inadvertently belittled their emotions or attempted emotional management? What about their autonomy? Did you inadvertently disempower them? Your behavior informs their behavior, always. Regardless of how far they move up the academic ladder, you will always be in a position of power over your students. You will always inform their behavior. Identify one behavior that is really working on your nerves in your module right now. Are they consistently late? Do they not pay attention? Is attendance waning? Now examine your behavior. Are you doing anything to communicate unconscious messages to your students that is cueing their behavior? And if you can't, email me. We will figure it out together. I conclude this podcast by reminding you that learning does not happen in a vacuum, but rather in a module and in a classroom context where intellectual pursuits interface with socio-emotional issues. You establish your learning climate with seemingly inconsequential decisions that have unintended negative effects. Most lecturers have no knowledge of how they arrived in a learning climate, be it good or bad. It's time we got conscious and purposeful about the learning climate that we create in our classrooms. In an ongoing honorary update, she has not yet managed to apply for the ethical clearance renewal because she's still waiting for student admin to let her into the LMS. I think she is particularly glad that she found this out way before her deadline. And I also think she's starting to wish that she had committed to completing another task in the procrastination bucket. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to me. Because you know that without you, I would just be an odd person hanging out in a sound booth. Please consider some of these strategies to create an inclusive and nurturing learning climate where students can flourish and develop emotionally, socially and intellectually. Please share your experiences with me, positive or negative. I will leave contact details in the episode description. Our next episode is our last official episode in the season. I will continue to record bonus episodes as we did with Anari and hopefully with enough of your input we can record more where we can unpack your experiences of attempting some of our strategies into your classroom and learning practice. Our next episode is about how students become self-directed learners. I am a self-proclaimed lifelong learning evangelist 
As such, I'm super excited to record our last episode and even more excited to share it with you.